Welcome to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast where you will discover creative ways to improve your health and well-being. Someone may have told you that art isn't for you, but they were wrong. Anyone can create arts for the health of it. No talent or experience necessary. I'm just a little songbird. Try to fly my way homeward with the melody And I make the beat Don't know where it'll take me, take me Cause when I'm in the dark of night I sing my way back to the light Come along with me and your heart will see That a song changes everything Oh Hello, everyone. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Arts for the Health of It podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wilmore. And I'm your co-host, Constanza Rader. And, Y'all. Oh, sorry. Yes. Stanzi's freaking out. <laughs> so I'm just going to like mute myself <laughs> and let her scream about what just went down here on the podcast. Go. Oh, I'm so excited. Y'all. Okay. Imagine, if you will, a day when your doctor could prescribe social and arts and cultural engagement and your insurance paid for it. It sounds like a crazy thing, but it's something that's already happening in the United Kingdom. Um, it's called a process called social prescribing. And it's because in the United Kingdom, they found that there is this, this important link between arts engagement and cultural engagement in health and well-being. And our guest today is one of my favorite people, um, Jill Sonke. She's the director for the Center for Arts and Medicine at the University of Florida. And she is one of the principal inve investigators for the Epi Arts Lab. And it's uh, in partnership with, it's funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, and they're exploring the impact of arts and cultural engagement on population, health outcomes in the United States with, with the hope um, to bring social prescribing here to the United States. And y'all, oh my gosh, Jill is just this wealth of ideas and is such a wonderful, beautiful person, is inspiring in so many ways. And I can't wait for you to hear this amazing interview. I mean, and one of the things that, well, that we as an organization here want is like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going, I'm staying in the hospital. So I get a nurse, a doctor and a musician. Like, yeah. And we sort of not joke about it, but like, can you imagine? And that's actually happening in places where, where they're like, no, in order to get better, you need to engage in the arts. It's not necessarily just here, come paint or come sing. It's like, go watch, go engage in them, go enjoy, enjoy it. And, yeah. and there are actual health benefits around just enjoying it so you can be a quote unquote bad artist, but still going out and enjoying it makes your world better. Oh, yeah. Jill, I love the words she used in this in, in this interview. She talked about joy and bliss and um, that so often we forget how important joy and bliss is in our lives. And we can so easily access that um, through the arts, through singing with your favorite song or um, dancing along or enjoying some beautiful, incredible artwork. 
And we have breaking news about her new arts engagement practice. You'll have to wait for the end where she talks about her new art practice and gives you some suggestions of things to do as well. Yes. And because it's me, I always bring it back to Madonna. And so you also talk about her for a minute and how (laughs) she can change because music makes the people come together. Uh, So what you're thinking right now is like, okay, that's great. Sonsy and Richard, but um, we can't leave our houses and we're all in quarantine. So how Mm. am I supposed to be socially prescribed to go out? But since COVID and even before that, which I think is fascinating and I didn't know, there are a ton of virtual museums you can go to. Like museums have now taken their entire collections and put them in a virtual setting where you can tour museums. And what's great is that they're all over the world. The town I grew up in of 600 people had this tiny little museum and it was the same, like that never, it was just like artifacts. And so you'd go (laughs) around the circle once and then I was like, all right, cool. I knew who was prom king in 1983. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but now you can go anywhere and and look at other people's creations and we're going to have uh, some links to some of uh, some of great ones um on the notes to this but you can literally just google virtual art mu- art museums and a ton of them will pop up and you never know like there could be one in your town or in your state that you never knew even existed and now mm. you can go virtually there you go awesome. there you go all right, are you ready to relive your Jill Sonky interview? Oh, I'm so excited. All it's right. amazing. Here we go. Thanks for listening, everyone. Here's the interview. Yes. Like we're interrogating you. That's the word I was looking for. But we're not. We're just talking to Jill Sonky. Um, I like this title, Principal Investigator for the Epi Arts Lab. How do you feel about being a principal investigator and what is it? And then we'll go into <laughs> what you're doing it for. That's great. Thank you, Richard. So um, just to note, I'm co-principal investigator with Dr. Daisy Fancourt from University College London. Um, And I'm super excited to be in that role. To be able to partner with Daisy Fancourt um, is always an honor and an absolute pleasure. And we are just really excited about the work that the Epi Arts Lab is undertaking. Jill is director of the Center for Arts and Medicine at University of Florida. Um, We have an amazing arts and health program there, and they offer a summer, two-week summer intensive where they people from around the country can come and learn about arts and health and how to do it, how to provide arts engagement in healthcare settings, everything from grant writing to the actual doing the work um, with patients. And so I had the pleasure of going and doing that two-week intensive during that first year that I started Hearts Need Art. And it was invaluable. And just I'm always in awe of what the Center for Arts and Medicine is doing and the way that um, you have really led and lead in the field and um, so freely share the information that you learn to help edify the whole field of arts and health. She's fangirling a little bit. I'm so fangirling. <laughs> so I love Jill Sonky. Jill <laughs> looks <mutual>. like she, <laughs> Jill looks like she's 30, but she's done the work of a 170 year old. I feel like the amount of work you've done and the amount of progress you've made in the in the world of arts and health, like how do you fit that in? Thank you, Richard. Um, so I'm a part of an amazing team. Um, I have been at the University of Florida since uh, 1994 when I started working as an artist in residence. So I started as an artist working as a dancer, 
primarily in the bone marrow transplant unit. Um, started working right away with you know an incredible group of people who were really pioneering in this space. So we were one of five of the kind of first programs that bubbled up in the United States. Um, I, the University of Iowa actually started in the 70s. The rest of us started in the 1980s um, and just very independently of one another started doing this work. And then in 1990, when the Society for Arts and Healthcare was created, there was some, you know, connection made between programs. And I would say that's when uh, the field and discipline began to emerge. But, um, you know, I, I would, in answer to your question, Richard, again, I have to point to the incredible team of people here, the, the artists and residents um, who are led by Tina Mullen at, at UF Health Shands Arts and Medicine and the incredible faculty and staff and students in the Center for Arts and Medicine. Um, and I would point to the passion that exists in this field. It's one thing that's unique about the field mm -hmm. of arts and health is that the people who come to it um, are really t tend to be drawn in um, with a lot of passion with a lot of commitment, with a lot of uh, dedication, innovation, and you know, we we feel as hungry to discover and learn and grow and innovate today as we did um, 30 years ago. Now, you mm. know, when this program began, so that to me is really extraordinary and a testament to how meaningful work that happens at the intersection of the arts and health is. And can you share a little bit about that from your perspective of like, what do you think fuels that passion? You mentioned it a little bit, you know, it's a very meaningful work, but what, you know, sometimes it's referred to as magic. Like what, why, what is it about this intersection that is so impactful um, and just fuels that, that passion and that drive for the people that get to do it? I would say it is quite often personal experience, um, you know, with illness, um, you know, arts and illness, or with just the arts and life. You know, those of us um, who have a, a personal experience of how transformative the arts can be feel really, you know, compelled to share that experience. I mean, from my perspective, the arts and creativity it's an available resource that we all have at our disposal. I mean, not all people like art or want to do art, and that's that's important in this space as well. It's certainly not for everybody. Um, but, you know, it's it's. I, I look at music, like how many of us dose ourselves with music every day? Mm. Like, do you look forward to, you know, the, the walk, if you're a student, the walk between classes so you can put your AirPods in and listen to some music? getting home from work when we work away from home um, <laughs> and turning our finish, finishing work and turning music on. Um, we do that because that music, because the arts shift our, our state of being. They help us relax. They help us feel better. It just feels good. Um, I've actually, I'm a dancer by training. I came to this work as a dancer, as I mentioned. Um, but in the past, just over a year, I started playing the guitar and singing oh. and right it's amazing i didn't know this a, about you jill <laughs> this is a new secret um exclusive but I'm a who's, right um <laughs> i'm a person who's like mouthed the words to happy birthday my entire life because Aww. i felt like i can't sing i don't sing i shouldn't subject my singing to anybody and um a couple of years ago i had an experience with some very generous friends who were beautiful amazing singers and were singing and i just in a moment said, I can't stand it. I have to join you. I'm going to make noise. I'm sorry, but I, I'm going to enjoy sorry. it. And they welcomed me in and, um, 
and I, you know, discovered singing. And so especially with COVID, um, I got a guitar, I started getting, you know, a little more dedicated to it. And since COVID, I've played the guitar and sang every day. And I feel like I've had this re rebirth as an artist, you know, oh. not again, nobody wants to hear me. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not really good um, at all. <laughs> but I love it. And it doesn't matter if I'm not great because nobody has to listen to me. Um, but I love it, love it, love it. And I've had another in my life, deep discovery of how transformative art and creativity can be between Zoom meetings during the day. I grab my guitar, I play one song. I feel totally different in the evening. Mm. I play, you know, I play outdoors with friends. I, it's bliss and joy. And I am certain that it it has helped me um, sustain and and be fairly well during this difficult year that we've all encountered. Oh my gosh, that brings tears to my tears to my eyes as a voice teacher. Like getting getting to hear people um, kind of reclaim their voices and the the euphoria and the bliss that you talk about. It's so powerful, yeah. and it's so it's I'm so gift. so excited for you, Jill. Like what a gift of of COVID. <laughs> She'll come back when her album drops. <laughs> <laughs> before she goes on tour that's the next interview <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll, we'll see about that but i'm gonna keep singing in the meantime <laughs> do it yes what was it about the guitar i feel like my like perception of you was probably be that like you are an like a beautiful pianist i don't know why i feel like you would have in your home the grand piano and you would be like no just people i know were playing guitars a friend mm. loaned me a uke and i you know started with mm. that and then um and that wasn't you know the the instrument for me i've um always been curious my son is actually an incredible guitarist he's an amazing musician um so he's been teaching me some and that's been amazing that's to make music with my son Mm. Uh, so it was just there. People around me were playing and were, again, incredibly generous in teaching me and tolerating the noise I was making. So, <laughs> so, still tearing up. I know. I like, I like I'm still wiping tears away. It's just <laughs> such a I love hearing those stories from people. Mm. And as a, you know, as an artist myself, you know, I'm, I'm a musician. And so I, f I feel that way yeah. about dance. Like when I discovered dance because it's not my main uh -huh. discipline there was a release and a freedom that i found in that and i'm not amazing yeah. like i i mean i guess technically i did it a little bit professionally in my musical theater career but um but it's it's just joy for for me and it's such a wonderful yeah. it's a different type of release than i get through singing or creating music um mm -hmm. so anyway it just it touches touches my heart. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, our own art forms, especially when we pursue them vocationally, can become work, right? And so our relationship can be a little bit more complex. Not that we mm -hmm. don't find bliss and joy and you know flow and all those great things in it, but it it can change. And that's kind of I think Constanza the beauty of of what our artists are doing in hospitals and communities and providing those moments to people. And well you know, most of the time, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be good quality doesn't matter. It's, you know, we talk about process versus product. Um, but also, I just want to note that in this field, there's also a place for the importance of excellence and mm -hmm. where it does matter, right? I mean, when we bring, especially the performing arts into public spaces in healthcare, um, we can't just bring in musicians like me who love it, right? And I can like, <laughs> uh -huh. I love it when I'm playing, 
but the people around me are not going to feel great when they're missing. <laughs> and we actually know this from research that's that's shown there's um, great studies of choral singing, for example, where they did saliva cortisol tests and the singers had reduced stress and increased immune response and the listeners had increased stress and reduced <laughs> reduced mm. immune response. So, so it, you know, being subjected to anything that isn't pleasurable and when we're thinking about the arts that we don't feel is really good and a delight can actually be detrimental, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it can, it can be detrimental to our health. So as professionals who bring the arts and artists into public spaces and offer them to people, it actually really does matter quality. And art is a totally subjective thing. Like nobody can legislate what's quality, although, you know, museums do it, performing arts centers do it. Uh, you know, it's very subjective. But what we do in healthcare is we align with patient satisfaction constructs. So I love this concept um, in healthcare of there's satisfiers, dissatisfiers, and delighters. Hmm. Um, satisfiers are the things that are what we expect. And as, as consumers of healthcare, we expect excellence. So when I go as a patient and I receive care that's excellent, I'm satisfied, right? But when I encounter or receive something that's better than I expected, that's a delighter. And that's some that's what builds the business of healthcare. That's what gets patients, you know, coming back to a particular institution as opposed to another for care. So we kind of align with that with, um, you know, music, for instance, that we're bringing into public spaces. So when we audition musicians, which we do audition all of our musicians, we have a full panel um, evaluating those auditions. We look for the musicians for whom we all are delighted, right? It's like better than we expected. If we find a performance to be better than we expected, we can assume that you know others in the environment will as well, and that that odds are that person will generally be received well or be perceived to be providing you know art that's gonna that's gonna be pleasant, right? And and provide relaxation um, for people. So. That's how we frame that, you know, that conversation and our orientation to excellence. It's the same for us with putting visual arts on the walls in public spaces. It's got to be stuff that, you know, most people are going to like. Um, but what's happening, you know, between artists and patients in the rooms, you know, our artists are awesome facilitators and they're great artists themselves. But we're not in those rooms to develop and seek artistic excellence unless the patients want to want to learn and go in that direction. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful point and an important distinction that, you know, the the people that are that we bring into healthcare spaces that are leading patients, caregivers in these processes, there is a level of artistic excellence that is really important, as you mentioned. But of course, our expectation of patients is not that they produce excellent artwork, but they just enjoy the delight in the in the process. Um, so I love how you articulated that. Thanks, Joe. How do you deal with, I mean, there's so much, there's so many people who want to do the work and their intention is in the right place and their heart is in the right place, but their <laughs> skill level is not. So they come to you and they're like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. And, and this means so much to me. And this is my experience and why I want to do it. And then you listen to them. Or if I were to, if I were to have um, applied at HeartsMeet Art with one of my paintings, 
sponsored by Mike. You know, bye. But how how do you tread those waters with people who just want to do the work? Yeah, it's it's difficult because um, you know we we do get people who come with an incredible level of you know passion, and again, it comes from personal experiences. People whose whose lives have been transformed for the arts, and they want to share that with others. Um, but we've got clear, you know, parameters when we're hiring, like we don't always have positions available. In fact, mm -hmm. we don't often have positions available because our artists stay with us. Um, when we do have positions available, you know, we put out a call, we collect applications, we interview, we audition, we do all of those things. And we have particular criteria in mind for any particular position. So we're looking for the right artists. Um, we have, a, we have a lot of volunteer opportunities where people are assisting artists and residents, and those are places that people who, you know, really just want to get into the mix and help um, can, can get some experience. Um, you know, where, where I think we run into that, Richard, is with like donation of artwork. You mentioned, you know, bringing your mm. painting, if you had brought your painting to Constanza. Um, that's where, again, Tina Mullen, who's the curator um, for our hospital as well, has learned over the years that it's so hard to say no to donations. But but again, we set processes, we set criteria, um, and that helps us to be able to, you know, receive artwork that's that's right for the environment. Um, mm -hmm. But often when people come who, who really want to do something but aren't a right fit for our program, we help them find, you know, either a, a place, you know, in our programs, whether it's our education programs or, you know, they could be participants in our community programs, they could volunteer, or we could direct them to other organizations in the community, you know, who might be a better fit, you know, for mm. their experience or interests. So mm. um, I wouldn't say, I would say in our early years, it was more of an issue because we actually didn't know how to have the conversations that helped position people's interests correctly mm. we would bring people in who we shouldn't have and then we'd have the difficult time of well this isn't a fit and now we've got mm. to deal with that um so i i would say that's much less of a problem for us because of the experience that we've had yeah you don't want to stunt their creativity you don't want to like you're not good enough <laughs> you know you don't <laughs> oh, want to do that no yeah no i mean it takes a particular constellation of experience and skill to be an artist in healthcare and a lot of that is i mean there's so many incredible mm -hmm. talented artists in this world um but there are far fewer talented incredible artists in this world who will be able to navigate the healthcare environment in a way that you know is works for them you know the person who can work in healthcare um and whose work will will fit in healthcare. So, you know, like your program, um, we've had to learn how to how to make those connections and, and mm. find the right fits. So we've talked a lot about like the the bliss, the joy, the the impact of doing art, participating in art can have on our health and well-being. And I'd like to transition over to talk about the Epi Arts Lab and your work with that. The who, what and why. So yeah. <laughs> so the Epi Arts Lab is a National Endowment for the Arts Research Lab here at the University of Florida. Um, it's, as I mentioned, it's a partnership um, between the Center for Arts and Medicine and Dr. Daisy Fancourt at University College London. Um, this lab extends Dr. Fancourt's work in the UK to the United States. So Daisy has, over the past six years, had privileged access to two big longitudinal data sets in the UK. 
Um, one is a data set wherein in one week in 1947, I believe, or two in the 1940s, I think it was 47, um, in the UK, every baby born in one week was consented to a longitudinal lifetime research study. I think 95% of the babies born did join the study. Wow. And um, 85% of them have stayed, um, I believe, through their lives. So it's a really big data set. They've collected just all kinds of data on these folks, health, social, economic, all the things. Um, wow. And um, another aging um, longitudinal study in the UK. So those two data sets combined have almost 400 questions on arts and cultural participation patterns wow. and habits, as well as health and all those other things. So Daisy and her team have developed um, incredibly sophisticated statistical models to be able to analyze at the population level using those data that are representative of the UK population um, to analyze uh, impacts, outcomes related to arts and cultural participation. So people who engage in the arts, for instance, are far less likely um, after the age of 50 to develop depression or cognitive decline or age-related disability. Um, children who exhibit marked creativity and participate actively in the arts are I think 47% likely to be maladjusted um, than others. So really compelling health mm. outcomes at the population level, statistically related to arts and cultural participation. Um, the, the work that she does, they, they sort of can simulate randomized clinical control trials. So they're not causal studies, but they can simulate, you know, by, um, creating um, control groups and comparing groups and, and their findings hold up across demographic groups. Um, so they're very compelling findings and they've contributed to the, the implementation of social prescribing in the UK. And that's a system wherein physicians can refer patients to social activities, arts and cultural activities um, prescriptively. So those patients then meet with a link worker. The NHS employs thousands of link workers that, that talk with patients about what their interests are and they connect them to community resources. So for instance, if the, if the person wants to do a pottery class, um, they'll be connected by the link worker and then the NHS pays for those programs. Mm. Um, so it is arts and social prescribing and it's reduced the burden tremendously on primary care systems and the outcomes are also very compelling. Um, so Daisy had been eager to extend that work to other parts of the world. Um, so she and I partnered so that we could do that work in the United States and we've identified seven longitudinal data sets that, that together parallel those UK data sets so that mm -hmm. um, Daisy and her team are able to apply those statistical models and we're now doing studies of how arts and cultural participation impacts population level health outcomes in the United States. So we're five studies in so far. Our first manuscript um, is under review and we're really excited about um, doing these analyses and then um, moving on to looking at the most compelling statistical findings um, that, that we garner from these studies and then doing prospective studies in communities. So seeing how these statistical outcomes play out in prospective comparison trials in communities. Um, at its heart, this is also a, p a policy initiative. We hope mm. that this research will lead to policy implications, something akin to social prescribing in the United States. Um, there's already, there's a, a social prescribing pilot happening in Massachusetts. Um, 
So there's already a, a lot of interest bubbling up around something like social prescribing in the U.S., and we hope we can can create a tipping point for that. Though we recognize that the United States is very different than the U.K. Um, we have, you know, a, a, a third-party payer, you know, healthcare system. We don't have socialized healthcare. We have a very different, you know, cultural context, political context, social context, economic context. So it's going to be really interesting. Um, for us to see how these studies play out here. Let me just, I wanted to highlight this one point in case mm -hmm. our listeners didn't understand it or missed it. So in the UK, they've rolled out a social prescribing program where the healthcare system is paying for people to engage in the arts as part of their That's healthcare. Right. That's right. Among I other social activities, not just the arts, but the arts and social activities. Yep. Gotcha. And they're seeing a lower burden on the healthcare system because of that. Is right. that correct? Primary, at the primary at the primary care level, in particular, or like general practitioner mm -hmm. practitioner mm -hmm. practices. Yeah. So the the um, the thing there is that it, it's true in the United States as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of um, a lot of primary care and emergency department visits um, are for things related to mental health and social isolation. Mm. Um, so when folks, you know, present for care and and they don't need sort of high level, you know, medication or um, interventions, but they're just not thriving, right? They're just mm. not doing really well. And especially when that can be attributed to things like loneliness, social isolation, low grade depression, those sorts of things. Um, a provider can try and not at the not exclusively of other things. So this is, you know, not an approach that's in lieu of, you know, any other form of care, but they can offer the patient opportunities to, in a prescriptive way and in a structured way, engage in social activities that can, just like, you know, we're talking about earlier, you know, playing the guitar is fun. It makes you feel better. You know, can, can, can we improve people's health and, um, prevent the kinds of things that do need medication or more complex and risky treatment by connecting people to social activities. And um, the findings are strongly, yes, we can. Mm. Now, Daisy Fancourt, she was part of leading the COVID social study. Or is, is, are you familiar with mm -hmm. that as well? And is that part of the Epi Arts um, collaboration or is that something separate? Yeah, it is separate, but we did again partner with Daisy on that and extended that study to the United States. Mm -hmm. So yes, Daisy has collected um, information since COVID, since a little bit pre-lockdown. Um, and that study, uh, it's a really amazing study. It collects data from people on a weekly basis. So she had, oh boy, I haven't even looked in a few months, but last at last count, 80,000 plus people enrolled in that study. Wow. Um, such a big cohort um, of people that Daisy was, you know, reporting to the to the government every week, you know. They have nothing findings. else to do. We're all stuck at home. Why not? <laughs> May as That's well right. fill out a survey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we extended that to the United States. So, um, and I, as a participant in that study, I can say it was really interesting. And we heard this from a lot of people too. I looked forward to completing that survey every week because it was a really interesting self-reflection mm. on my own mental health, my own well-being, and my own arts and other, you know, um, habits, the things I was doing. How much was I getting into nature? How much was I engaging creatively? Creati creatively. So a lot of people really enjoyed doing it. Um, 
And we've, we've, I think we enrolled about 7,500 people in the United States, so a much smaller number, but Daisy's team will soon begin analyzing um, those data here as well. I think it's also smart too that you were talking about the self-reflection of what you did, especially with people who are always making sure everybody else is engaging in them. We sometimes forget to do it ourselves because we're so busy making sure everybody else did it. So that's, I think that's great to like keep yourself accountable. Yeah. Practice what we preach. Um, how long is the study for the, um, Epi Arts lab? So Epi Arts, um, we've got a three year plan that we're funded for um, at this point. And the third year, we'll start those prospective studies in communities. Um, but we're already rolling out our plans into years four and five. Yeah. So oh, and I want to bounce back a second to the COVID social study, because what oh, sure. I didn't say is that um, Daisy found that in the UK, 21.4% of people were engaging more in the arts since COVID. Interesting. Um, and found some really nice connections to coping and well-being among those who, who were doing um, arts and, and things like that more often. It points to this very, I think, innate part of ourselves that we kind of naturally gravitate to the arts when we're in crisis. Like there's something about it that is that is right that we sense is that we need that is regulating um and i think that's one reason i i like doing arts in a healthcare setting is because in a way people are often more open to engaging in the arts than they might just if they were normally in the community and for some people it's it's a reintroduction or an introduction to art making um that they may not have explored otherwise uh, and then of course in covid we're all experiencing collective trauma and um, <laughs> collective suck. <laughs> and so, you know, we just, that makes, I mean, that makes, it's not surprising to me, but how cool to kind of see it play out in the data. And it was interesting to see as well with COVID, you know, how quickly people started playing music from balconies and mm. talking their driveways and having driveway singing in, in neighborhoods and murals. So I think the, um, you know, all of that, people really, as you said, Constanza, just turned to the arts to connect, to express, to cope, um, and to enjoy, to find joy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say generally that the connections between the arts and health got a lot clearer for, for the general population during COVID. I mean, we saw a huge increase in applications to our graduate programs. Mm. Um, people really seem to be you know, understanding this connection more than than previously. Culturally, our relationship to the arts is different than in some of these other mm -hmm. parts of the world, um, where in the UK, for instance, um, and in other places where social pres prescribing is happening, like Canada, um, Australia, Scandinavian countries, there's more governmental support of the arts, and that governmental support of the arts has been a little more consistent um, historically than in the United States. Um, so because of that, there's there's more access to the arts. So there may be more general prevalence of the arts. Um, again, I'm grossly generalizing here with these thoughts. <laughs> um, another, you know, another direction of my thinking around that is um, the level to which in the United States, um, I think, again, gross generalization, but I think we tend as a society to either consider ourselves artists or not. Mm -hmm. And 
when we're not really good at it and don't pursue it as a, as a career or vocation, we just stop, kind of stop doing it and leave it to others. Um, we also have seen an a significant decrease in the presence and prevalence of the arts in education, K through 12 education. Um, and, you know, I think culturally we tend to um, often uh, equate the arts with kids, you know, things that you do when you're a kid. So again, total generalizations, but there may be something about those areas that's a little bit different between our culture and some of the, the other um, countries in which arts and health, um, especially arts and health research may be a little, a little more advanced. Do you have a hope that the work you're doing in the Epi Arts Lab might start to shift some of that? And you mentioned specifically around shifting policy, but also maybe mm -hmm. um, our, the mindset we very generally have in our country around yep. and toward the arts. Yep. And we do. We, we very explicitly want to see um, in the near future a time where the general public recognizes that like good nutrition, exercise, wearing seatbelts, taking time to be creative is something that we have at our disposal to be a part of our toolkit for good health. Hmm. I mean, I should just, you know, take time to be creative three times a week, just like I, you know, take time to exercise, you know, <laughs> because it's good for me. So that, that association between creativity and the arts and health, we do hope will become more, more widespread in this country. So something I would ask of, of, you, Jill, uh, we'd like to we like to um, include like a little segment, a little practical example of things that our listeners can try on their own. And do you have do you have something that you might offer to our listeners of something that they can explore um, on on their own today? Um, it's like the the low hanging creativity fruit. You know, where is it in your life? Where can you reach without? You know, it's not like making a huge shift in your life, right? Mm. You can, you you know, while you're cooking dinner, you can turn on some music and you can move a little bit. Um, so I think it's, they're easy entry points for remembering how good being creative can feel. Oh, I love that. It's not about like, okay, here's how you set up your art room and here are all the things that you need and all that. It's just like, well, you have a phone, like turn on your, turn on a song that you like and sing along. Like that is... Yeah. Um, and how, how fun is that? And I think most people probably do that already in their car. And I love that call that invitation to give ourselves permission to do that more. I yep, hate and to not care. It's one of the beauties about being 55. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think I could have done what I'm doing with music in my forties because I think I cared too much about, mm. you know, how people perceived anything I was doing. Um, so I would say age has a little to do with it too. The liberation, you know, of just of just getting a little bit older. Wish I mm. wish I had gotten there in my twenties. Something for us to look forward to. Yes. Love it. Mm -hmm. I was just going to tell a story about the time when I first moved to Texas, and I hate grocery shopping. And the first time I went to an HEB here, I walked in, and they were playing Madonna, and they were giving out wine samples, and I was like. <laughs> This is where I meet. Yes. And I remember walking that entire thing and just singing the entire, like mouthing all the words. And I actually had, it was like the only time I've ever enjoyed being in a grocery store. That's great. But it was so like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I feel so. And I probably spent too much money because I was having so much fun. <laughs> it worked. 
Yeah. So Jill, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing and the Epi Arts Lab and all of that? Where can people go to get more information? On our website. So just Google Center for Arts and Medicine at the University of Florida. Um, and I think all of that is pretty easy to find on our website. Um, we've got a, a tab for resources, one for research, um, certainly uh, there's information there about our educational programs. So I would say our website is a great resource. We also um, do a lot on Instagram and Facebook. Um, so definitely find us on those social media platforms, Twitter as well, and LinkedIn. Um, find us and like us or follow us there. Um, we've, we've got stuff coming out almost every day. Um, we've got a newsletter as well that, that you can join through any of those platforms. We're pretty I easy to, to reach out to. You mentioned something in passing that I wanted to highlight for those of you that are kind of research nerds like me, the research database that the Center for Arts and Medicine curates is fantastic. And you can search it by different topics um, and different populations. And so if you want to go down the research rabbit hole, mm -hmm. I recommend. <laughs> it's so yeah. cool. And I'll, I'll add to point people um, to one other part of our website. It's our COVID-19 arts response um, site, we developed a number of resources, uh, call for collaboration, governmental advisory briefs that, that are really designed to encourage engagement of artists, arts organizations, in, and the arts in COVID responses. We're calling to governors, local governments, the national government. Uh, so those briefs are there and, and um, can be really helpful for those who are looking to, to join COVID recovery and response, vaccine hesitancy, you know, campaigns, all of that. We've got resources there to support that. And we, we've got a repository of COVID-19 arts response projects, which can connect you with artists, organizations, media, examples of projects. And we've just also launched our um, anti-racism arts response repository. So again, people, programs, um, organizations, doing work using the arts to address racism and anti-racism in the United States. So those are those are really great, fresh resources. And I'm so grateful for the mission of the Center for Arts and Medicine for curating and pulling these kind of resources together and then providing them, making, making them available. Um, it's just wonderful. And I'm constantly thankful for you and the Center for Arts and Arts and Medicine. <laughs> I uh, hope this is one of many appearances on this podcast because uh, you are a wealth of information and you're fun to talk to. And thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you both. This has been really fun. I'm so glad that you're doing this program and thanks for inviting me. Of course. Of course. Jill Sonke, everyone. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you uh, follow us, do all the fun things. All the links from today's show will be on our website, heartsandart.org. Click on the podcast link. That's it. New episodes every week. All right. <laughs> goodbye, everyone. Keep creating. Thank you for listening to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast produced by Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers in partnership with the National Thank Organization you, for Arts and Health. You, you can help others awesome. learn about the healing power <laughs> of the arts by subscribing, sharing, and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen or watch. The podcast is hosted by Richard Wilmore, co-hosted by Constanza Rader, and produced by Ivan Briones. 
Our theme song, Songbird, is written and performed by Natalie Lane. Visit heartseedart.org to learn how you can support our mission to create joy with people facing life-altering health challenges. Join us next week to learn more ways you can create arts for the health of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Heartseed Art, their staff, board members, or other affiliates. All content is created for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice or to diagnose and treat any health condition. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard on this podcast.